Friday, September 20th, 2019. Time for episode 93 of the Barnhart Podcast. And as you can tell from the different theme music, which you might have been a little confused because we haven't played this in a really long time, we have Financial Friday back again. And, and it's the perfect time because as we're recording this at 925 in my time code or, or time zone, it is now after Compline, which means we anticipate the feast of the next day. And it is the feast of St. Matthew the Apostle, the patron of businessmen. So it's a perfect time to bring back the Financial Friday. Hooray! It is. I have to compliment you on that theme music. You were that's that's your masterwork. That is your masterpiece. That's the that's gotta be one of the best intro theme music bumpers of any podcast anywhere. It's it's just really choice and compliments to you, sir. That means it's all downhill from now, so I guess I can just coast. And I mentioned St. <laughs> Matthew, the, the patron of businessmen, and like St. Matthew, you've written a book. Hooray! Yes, I want to open by just thanking everybody so much and letting you know that the book launch thing happened. It seems to be working, um, and uh, all the costs are covered for the typesetting and everything. I'm in the black, speaking of business and capitalism and all that. So thank you all very much. God bless you, and I'll be taking that the sticky post off of the, the top of the website so we can get back to seeing what the top post actually is at the top of the web at the web of the website, but then I will add a, um, an item to the, the main menu up on the top. And then I'll probably see if you super nerd can maybe add, I don't know, some sort of a, just a bar across the top of the website or something that says click here to buy Ann's book or something like that. I, I don't know. And then also, um, the intention is, is that, you know, my oove is my written oove is just, it's over a million words. It's it's up into the seven figures in terms of words. And so there are numerous um, different little volumes that, that I can put together. And the intention is to put together maybe one a month or one every six weeks until, you know, we have, you know, four, five, six little volumes. So there should be more um, released before Christmas. The next one that I want to do, what people have really asked is, can you put together a little book of apologetics essays that I could just hand to somebody who's looking at Catholicism, you know, kind of the greatest hits of apologetics and the, you know, the, obviously the things that are kind of cool and a little different, like um, a lot of people really, 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 really like the essay about um, the science behind the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, um, for example. That's a really that's a really powerful one, especially for for people who have who are in the process of converting or who are looking at converting or even or reverting too. So a collection of essays, kind of in that in that genre. Well, and on that specific topic, that's great because that's new science. And I was about to interject and say, on the topic of why should you convert? Why should you come to the Catholic Church? The easy part about putting together a book or collection of essays about that is you just go look at all the writings of people whose names start with ST and you just do a book report. Although there are some new scientific facts that come out that make it easy to add some new original content. Absolutely. I mean, that that makes it original. Exactly. Um, there are people, God bless them, who are who are. Um, compiling and putting out writings of the saints. And in fact, there's quite a lot still um, 
that has not yet been translated into English. There's still a lot of stuff, writings of the saints, so on and so forth, that s exists only in Latin, Italian, or French, and still needs to be translated into English. And so there, that's one of the things that young students and, and other people are doing um, is typesetting and getting all this stuff out, which again, that's the, that's the, the glory and wonder of this publishing on demand stuff, which is what I'm using. Oh, and by the way, I've received multiple emails from people asking me if they can get autographed copies. And I, first of all, no, come on guys, stop, stop fanboying. Um, and then second of all, no, because I, I have no, none of these books in inventory. I, I have no idea when I'll even see a copy of these books. I haven't ordered any for myself. Um, it might be a very, very long time before I ever actually hold one of my own published books in my own hand, just because it's, I don't have any. And so, no, I, I, logistically no i can't even if i wanted to i couldn't give um autographed versions of these books because i don't have them in front of me when you order a book or books they they are printed and produced in some printing factory somewhere in the united states and they're shipped directly to you i don't it's not like that's why this this paradigm is so cool and it works so well um, as far as i can tell is that I don't, I don't have to, and no publisher has to take the risk on running, you know, uh, an initial print on these things of like a thousand. I think a thousand is probably the minimum that normal conventional publishing that you even start with is a run of a thousand. I, I don't have that and I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend the money on that and nobody has to take the risk on that either. Um, so no, that's why that's why this all works because the cost structure is just kept very very low. When the order comes in, the books print, the books ship, it, it, even if it's just one. And the other thing that what that enables, and um, just kind of looking around on this website of this company that I'm using, Lulu, which is L U L U. Um, let's say you need to put together some sort of a presentation or something like that, and you only need five copies of a presentation, but this presentation you're putting together is going to be, you know, 100, 150 pages, whatever. You you can, you can make literally just five copies of, of something if you want to, order it from Lulu, have it shipped to yourself, and then you have professionally printed and bound paperback copies of whatever you're your presentation is and you can lay it out however you want. I mean, I, my typesetter, I was just kind of, you know, watching him do it. But as I understand it, it's just all PDF. Everything is PDF. So you can make it look however you want it to look. And you could have a professionally bound instead of having, you know, having to make the ring binders and things like that, which is what, um, I know there's something to be said for ring binders in terms of a seminar. That's what I used and still use with the DVD version of my cattle marketing school. Well, you can is, get it at um, any Kinko's pretty much. Yeah. Well, I mean, I did so many of them that I bought the, the binding machines. We, I always kept two binding machines with the comb, comb binding. That's what it's called. Not ring binding, the comb binding. That's what 
we use and still do use and make my cattle marketing um, workbooks out of because they they'll lay completely flat. But I mean, I could I could see how it would be possible to have um, a larger format, professionally bound paperback book that that could be pretty cool too. So maybe, maybe we'll go in that direction in the future with my cattle marketing uh, workbooks. Although I have no intention of changing right now because everything, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Everything works great. But um, it's just really interesting to think about what the potential is for, you know, on-demand binding and, um, and publishing like this. It's, it's pretty exciting. Well, okay. So the other formats that are available for publishing, have you considered making eBooks available or audio books? And of course, well, the, the, the obvious counter to this is the eBook is the website and the audio book is what you're listening to right now. Well, I mean, it, the, the eBook thing, I, yeah, I looked at that and I don't want to get into bed with Amazon at all. And that's pretty much what you have to do. Um, and like you said, I mean, if, if you want the electronic version, just go to the website and it's all there. Um, in fact, you can even just Google my last name, Barnhart, and then if you vaguely remember the title or even just the topic or even just a really key phrase that you're looking for, it will come up on search engines, either the direct link to the original on barnhart.biz or a lot of my stuff gets syndicated, meaning that other bloggers pick it up, repost it, republish it, which I'm, I'm totally fine with. Um, That's a separate topic that we've, we've, I wouldn't say argue, but we've had discussions about where I've said that you need to put a copyright indication on your website to say that, and a little disclaimer saying, if you want to syndicate this, that's fine, but you have to use attribution, which is uh, CC by NA, and, and, and there, there are different kinds of licenses. You, you just say, do tell people, do whatever you want with it. But legally speaking, if you say that, that means they could copy everything from your website and make a book like you did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably not really what you had in mind. Um, no. <laughs> but then that you're absolutely right on that point. It hasn't happened. Nobody's done it. I don't think anybody's going to do it. And the another kind of issue with or motivation and I think I talked about this on the last episode of me doing the little the little book project thing is and, and I think that some people are doing this because they're saying, oh, this, this is a way for me to, you know, give Anne a little bit of money. And it, it absolutely is. I mean, I think a lot of people are buying these books. And I think the, the largest order that's come through so far is um, for five. There's been a couple of order, a couple or three people who have ordered um, five copies I don't. I don't know if there. It's their intention to leave these in doctors' offices or on the New York City subway or on the L in Chicago and just kind of distribute them, or if they're saying, "I'm going to do." Um, this is just a little way for me to to, you know, donate a little bit of money to Anne. And yeah, I be. I, I'm not going to lie. Absolutely, that's that's part of the intention. So I'm not terribly worried about you know being being hamstrung or anything by people publishing my stuff. Um, it, I, I don't think it's, it's a concern. And like, like I've said before, with regards to my financial situation, first of all, the infant Jesus of Prague is my financial advisor. And so he's in charge of everything. And the other thing is that, you know, 
like as with Our Lady and that your intention in life should be to hit that sweet spot. So in terms of money, not too much, not too little, you know, baby bear, ah, just right. You know, that's, that's what I'm going for. So I, I have no intention of, <laughs> I have no intention of making hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. And, and I'm not looking at that speaking about capitalism and financial Friday. And that's just, that's a function of where I particularly am in life. Um, for me at this point, it actually would be, uh, it would be burdensome, difficult, open all kinds of cans of worms if I had enormous amounts of money coming in. I'd, I actually don't want that. I want to just continue to grind a grind forward such as it is so that there's, you know, rent's paid, everything's cool. There's enough money to spend on this, that, and the other. But I don't, if I, if I had too much money, it would actually become burdensome for me as we're probably going to get into talking about, you know, banking and all that kind of stuff. And especially, especially for me personally, what I'm doing, um, what I have been doing now for low these many years, it, you, you really, there's a freedom that comes with not having too much money that you can say the things that I say and you can do the things that I do. And I don't, I don't want that to stop. I want to continue as it is. If you, I mean, if somebody came to me tomorrow and said, I will cut you a check for a million dollars, I would have, I'd have a problem with that because that would, frankly, that would mess almost everything up in terms of my life today. And I've said this before without getting into too much detail. It, it seems to me that in terms of actual real quality of life, I'm not talking about, you know, buying power and, material decadence or anything like that in terms of quality of life i'm hard pressed to think of anyone who has a quality of life that's too terribly much higher than mine is as a lay person um what i have and the, the the things i have at my disposal the liturgy that i have on a daily basis i mean it's <laughs> i don't know how it could get a whole lot better i'm hard pressed to think how it could and so if someone were to to send me a wire transfer for a million dollars or cut me a check for a million dollars, that quality of life, believe it or not, believe it or not, that quality of life would be put into tremendous jeopardy, which I know to American ears sounds completely counterintuitive, but believe me when I tell you, it it absolutely would. So sometimes just, just the... Um, the slightly in the black monthly hand to mouth grind is is the best place to be obviously not for everybody and i'm speaking again as this bizarre early retired completely single laywoman so you know take take that as it is but that's my little rant about that I've always had the fantasy for a long time that if I had more money than I knew what to do with, I would uh, create something that, for lack of a better term, I always called it the Our Lady of Ransom Fund. And the idea is that given the current financial circumstances and the idea that everybody has to go to college and rack up all these debts, there are, without doubt, there's got to be a lot of people who realize that they have religious vocations. Mm -hmm. And by the time they realize that they've got 40, 50, 60, 120, $300,000 in debt because they went to law school before they realized it. Yep. And um, 
think back to the original Our Lady of Ransom societies, it was all about raising money to buy slaves from the from the Muslims. Um, at least we don't have to worry about them at the moment with this regard. We're, we're dealing with the the uh, Wall Street interests. But mm-hmm. the, the idea being, if there are, are folks out there who the only thing standing between them and a religious vocation is the fact that they owe some money, if I had more money than I knew, knew what to do with, that's how I'd spend it. Because when it comes to metaphysical exchange rates, I don't know how much better it gets than, hey, I allowed somebody to become an altar Christus or be, you know, allowed somebody to become a nun and a spouse of Christ. I yeah. don't think God is going to... Uh, overlook that in the grand scheme of things. It's not like I'm trying to buy heaven or anything. I, mean, I, could, I could still do all this wonderful stuff and screw it all up, just like mm-hmm. uh, Paul says in the gospel, if I have the faith to move mountains and don't have charity, I'm still going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. It, but that's, that's in terms of if you're sitting there and, and you've got seven or eight figures burning a hole in your pocket and you want to give it to a good cause, that's what I would suggest, but... <laughs> That would just be my crazy idea. Well, that's an absolute, that's a really good point. And I think a lot of people don't realize this. And you see, again, in terms of Satan being a very good chess player and setting the chessboard up so that people are just constantly in check and can't can't move, is a lot of people don't realize that, first of all, in order to enter a religious community, there's usually pretty strict age limits on all this. So you have to be a person who's, let's say, let's just call it vaguely, generally under 40, both male and female. Okay, how many people are there today in the Western world who are young, who are under 40, who are debt-free? Because they won't let... They cannot accept people who have debt because what that would, if they did, what that would start um, doing, it was it would start attracting people who were in debt as a means of just running away from debt. And so religious communities cannot, will not, and should not accept people who have all this debt. Well, we've got this whole completely disordered nonsense university situation where everybody has six figure, almost everybody now has this ridiculous, ridiculous six figure debt. Who's, you know, young and in that age window where they could be entering into religious life, et cetera. And, and almost everybody's disqualified. So again, it's just Satan putting everybody in check. So, um, yeah, that would be that would actually be an absolutely fantastic thing to do is that you, you know, you make the connection with um, all of these various different traditional communities that accept both men and women set up a fund. And but it would have to be done very, very quietly, because, again, what you don't want and you would have to rely heavily on the communities themselves to be very diligent about, you know, discerning the vocation of the person in question and make sure that people weren't just trying to enter into a religious community in order to have some, you know, some benefactor swoop in, pay off all their debts, all their student loan debts. And then as soon as that's done, you know, they stick around in the religious community, quote unquote, discerning for a year, two years, three years, and then say, oh, no, I've discerned out. And then hey, look, I don't have any debt anymore. I got somebody to pay off my debt. So you'd have to be very, very careful about it. And it would all have to be kept very, very quiet. But um, yes, in and of itself, that would be an absolutely fantastic thing for someone with, you know, an eight figure sort or higher sort of estate to build up a, um, 
a, um, what do they call, uh, an endowment, an endowment to, um, to do that sort of a thing. Yeah. It's also fantastic. referred to as a, as a religious patrimony as well. Mm, so mm -hmm. in, in the fact that the, the, the grand cathedrals that were even the not so grand cathedrals and churches, I'm not, not, not talking about the modern church in the round garbage. I'm mm -hmm. talking about the, the beautiful Catholic churches, even here in North America, these are all examples of patrimony where people gave their money, whether they paid for the stained glass window or they paid for the whole darn church. Yep. This is a form of, of patrimony that gets passed down to the generations. And this is, in a sense, a sacramental. I mean, not that your money is sacramental per se. It's, it's, all, it's all about how you use it and how you intend to use it. You can glorify God. I mean, God gives you these gifts. He expects you to use them appropriately. And we have the example of the good steward, or maybe that's not the best example. It, what's the one in the, the gospel where the, the steward gives the three different servants, the, the one ten talents, one five talents, one talents? The whole point is he, yeah. that you're supposed to be able to, to, to invest wisely. And in, in that particular gospel passage, the whole point was to go out and make capitalistic gain, which anybody who slams capitalism and making profit, Christ is praising the good people there. And even the one who, who didn't make financial gain, he took it away and gave it to the one who made the most. So, you know, God or Jesus didn't exactly slam capitalism per se. But the whole point is how you make that investment. Are you doing it purely for material reasons or are you investing in a way that can actually help people down the road? Exactly. And, and we're going to we're going to circle back around to this. But if anybody is ever there, there are a few examples in North America. But obviously, if you go to Europe, if you've ever gone on a vacation to Europe and walked around Italy, walked around France, walked around Germany, and you've seen the the architecture, if the art, um, if you've ever been to any of the, the major um, art museums, to the Uffizi Gallery, to the Louvre, um, to any of these places, and you see all of this art that was produced for churches, altarpieces, et cetera, et cetera. All of that, all of that was produced, was, was commissioned, paid for, produced is the fruit of profitable, profitable business people. Basically people would, would engage in business, would generate a profit. They'd have excess funds and a lot of the time, what they would do is that they would then turn around and contribute out of their profitability to pay artists, to commission this, to contribute to the building of, of the Duomo, the, the cathedral, the basilica, whatever it was. So if you're, if you're knocking profitability in and of itself, well, you need you need to be ideologically prepared to say goodbye and and declare declare intrinsically immoral and sinful all of the artistic patrimony and beauty that was generated in over the past two thousand years directly as as. Uh, uh, directly for the church, that wh where do you think all of this comes from? Where, who do you think paid for all of this? What what do you think Michelangelo did? Do you think that he you know sat on the street all day holding out his hat and people were tossing um, tossing the the pennies of the day into his hat? No, of course not. These these people were all paid. They were all you know put on retainer, given salaries, um, paid 
they were given commissions, specific commissions. You will do this. You will paint that. You will sculpt this, and I will pay you X X for that. And um, they were they were often the artists were often pressured to stay um, within a given time constraint and to stay on on budget in a sense, but most importantly to say, stay within a certain time constraint. And the artists themselves had to had to stay within time constraints because for example, you know, let's take Michelangelo and you're a sculptor, you can't take 15 years of your life. And remember the life expectancy of these people was you couldn't reliably expect to live much beyond the age of 45. So if you get, if you get over 45, you've pretty much beaten the odds. Um, you can't burn 15 years of your life messing around on one sculpture. You have to do it and you have to move on to the next thing and get your next commission and continue to produce and generate income. And again, where where's the money coming from to pay all these people this is what obviously you know marxists they they tend not to be the sharpest knives in the drawer and they tend to not think things through yeah, they're Some motivated them, by envy i mean what do you expect exactly exactly and so um they're not some of them are actually you know satanically evil most of them just don't think they think that you know food comes from the grocery store that electricity comes out of the wall that you know gasoline comes out of the is generated and created at the gas pump this is the the shallowness of thought they never stop to ask themselves who paid for all this and the people who paid for it, where did they get that money? Well, they got that money by engaging in business and uh, being profitable. So, so the Marxist is the person who buys a power strip, plugs the power cord into the first outlet, and then wonders why he can't power stuff at the rest of the outlets. Yes, exactly. Yep, that's right. <laughs> so you're talking about uh, college debt, and we've talked in the past, although this isn't really the topic for a topic for the podcast, but uh, in terms of colleges to attend. This is not a college recommendation, but I happen to know that if you were to go to Christendom College or Thomas Aquinas College and then have a religious vocation, I believe they suspend, uh, I don't know what the terms are, but if you end up becoming a religious and, and take your final vows and everything, they end up eventually annulling everything. And I know priests who have gone to both and they end up basically having their entire college um, debt payment, whatever they would have owed, wiped out. And that's probably because somebody set up an endowment specifically for it. So mm -hmm. circling exactly. around, I mean, there there are definitely options and plans for this, but that doesn't mean there's enough of them out there. I definitely had know some people, have known some people who are, thankfully are now in religious life who had to go through a, a, a phase in their life where they were passing the hat saying, I want to go join the religious life. I, I know that I've got a vocation, but I've got to pay down some debt. And they, they managed to find some, some generous benefactors. And they were willing to sign a contract saying that if I wash out in any time before final vows, I reassume all my debt and, yeah. and, and good on them for doing that. Yep. But, but um, you know, it, it's one of these things that if you have the means and you, in terms of metaphysical exchange rate, and we'll get into this in a minute, uh, in terms of you, you make an investment and reap a reward for it. I mean, you, for anybody who's, who's got money and, and that's the biggest problem they have is when they have too much money is how do I make an investment in something that's going to give me a good return? Well, are you looking for a return in this life or the next one? And when it comes to 
helping somebody get into the religious life, they're not going to forget who let them free of their debt. <laughs> they're going to pray for mm-hmm. you. And That's of course, right. Jesus won't forget this either. And uh, for the rest of us who who don't go into religious life and we amass a certain amount of debt for one reason or another, current trends are suggesting that uh, at least the, the, the silver lining to the fact that things are getting so expensive for college, for houses, for everything, at least if we're going with uh, zero interest rate plans and, and negative interest rate, at least the debts we're racking up now become less expensive over time. Is that rational or just delusional? It's delusional. <laughs> um, is, isn't it interesting that um, 30, 35, 40 years ago, when interest rates were so high, or just, you know, let's call it 15, 20 years ago when interest rates were, if I can use the word normal, reasonable, um, that all of this debt and all of these expenses were so much lower. Um, Look at, do you think it's a coincidence that people are saying, well, Anne, well, Anne, you don't, you don't understand both parents. We both have to work in order to have, in order to have a decent house. I mean, do you, do you think that that's just a complete coincidence? Um, it's, it's precisely because we've got this ridiculous situation with interest rates and you're trying to just, and you're pumping all of all of this fake phony baloney money and buyers into these markets that that is inflating the cost of these baseline commodities first and foremost being shelter um it's it's insane that it should take both parents working in order to have a, a decent roof over their head this is all a, this is all an innovation of the past the past few decades since the asteroid hit and since um you know the basically the heirs of russia marxists freemasons have really gotten their claws into the global economy and global financial paradigm especially in the west um it, it used to be that maximum mortgage rates and we've talked about this before in the podcast but it's been a couple of years maximum mortgage terms excuse me not rates but terms for for years and years and years and years and years and years up until after world war ii when again the heirs of russia start creeping into the west um and the and the communists really start coming into power maximum mortgage term was seven years that was the longest term mortgage you can get and that was in keeping with the old testament with the jubilee system etc cetera, etc cetera. the the furthest out you could go was was seven years and so what that meant is that first of all it kept it kept prices down and from being and from inflating because you know as it is with with real estate today also exactly the same thing with cars you push the interest rates down synthetically and you extend the term of the loan especially with cars we've seen this over the last 20 years where it went to 60 months and then it went to 72 months and now i don't i don't even know what kind of terms they're offering on car loans now i don't know how long they're they're reaching forward I but think it just they're up to like 84 months now if not yeah more. 84 yeah it would Which, be, i would 
that that's an interesting commentary that cars actually last long enough that they can make loans on them. So that's, you know, good for the cars. They can last long enough for that. But still, that's ridiculous. I've, I've heard it said that if you can't pay off a car in 24 months, you really shouldn't be buying it. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. And the same thing is with a house. If you can't pay off the house in seven years, you probably shouldn't be in it. You're you're overextended. Um, and so what that does is it keeps it keeps people, the market, let's call it the market, from inflating and bidding up the price of, of shelter per square foot such that now you're in the situation that we're in today where well, yeah, you can you can have a 4,000 square foot house. And in fact, that's pretty much all they'll build anymore. Um, the, the, the size of houses in North America just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But the only way you can do this is if you have a a 30 year loan, but then some people are doing, you know, still doing arms and they keep, they keep diving back in. They keep liberalizing, um, the home loan market and keep giving these ridiculous terms just to get, just to get people in and to keep the bubble inflated. And that's, that's what it is. It's a bubble. And so, yeah, people come and say, well, we both have to work. It's the only way we can do it. Well, you know, no, First of all, um, it, it isn't. It's the choice that you've made, and um, and it's all a function of people people being dumb, people not being taught arithmetic in school, not being taught logic in school, and all they see, all they see is the monthly payment. And it's the same thing with cars. Um, it's just. I can get you into this and here's the monthly payment. Oh, by the way, you're going to be upside down in this car the entire time you own it. The moment you drive it off the, off the lot, you're going to be upside down and you will never be in the black on this car. But you low, oh, look at this monthly payment, you know, look how low this is. And there's just, there's zero comprehension. Um, people don't look at how much they're paying in interest expense. They, oh, look at how, look at how low the interest rates are. Have you looked at the amortization table? Do you, do you still realize how much you're going to be paying? How much you're going to pay in total for this car that is, you know, it's only worth really in in real terms it's worth $20,000 and you're going to pay double that. Oh, but the interest rates are so low and look how low the monthly payment is because that's how shallow the thought process is. Well, so. if you transfer that to a house with arm uh, rates, then mm -hmm. the idea is how look how low the the payments are. Yeah, look how low the equity is also. Oh yeah, exactly. You're you're and that's why you have all of these short sales and people are constantly upside down in their house and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, because what people are doing with arms, the entire intention of arms, and for those of you who don't know, arm is adjustable rate mortgage. If you're if you're going a lot of people in the last bubble in the two thousand the one that culminated in two thousand eight, people were in one year arms. And so what they were essentially doing is they were just renting the house. There was no equity build whatsoever. All they're doing is they're paying rent on the house. And it's, it's a pure speculation. It was a pure speculation that the bubble was going to continue to inflate and that they would be able, and that the, the bubble will continue to inflate on real estate ad infinitum. And so therefore, the 
only way that you'll be in the black on the house and have any equity in the house is the inflation of the market. Not that you're building and paying down the principal on anything. You're not creating any, any, you know, base equity. All you're doing is speculating that the market is going to inflate such that if you put the house on the market and sell it, that it will sell for more than you paid for it. Um, and that's a, that is a terrible, terrible bet to make in, in a market such as this, which we all know is a bubble. I mean, the, it's an inverse thing. The lower the interest rates are, the more you should be thinking, wait a minute, I, I need equity. I don't need to be borrowing money. I need to be building equity. I need to be capturing equity. How can I do this? When everyone else is, is ignoring equity and blowing it off, that's when you know that you should be you should be like triple focused on equity. And I can go off on this rant and did many, many times over the course of my career, because this is exactly what I would preach to my cattle clients. When the, when the cattle market price would go up and people had this basically windfall equity build. So they're sitting on all these cattle that are worth way more than what they paid for them, you know, the year before. Um, what people would do over since, again, since the middle of the 20th century, after World War II, when the heirs of Russia started creeping into everything, um, what people would do is they would allow themselves, they would, they would succumb to their own greed, and they would succumb to the bad advice of their bankers and say, okay, you've got all this equity in, in these cattle. You need to now borrow more money against that equity. So you need to in, you need to re-increase your leverage so that you're just constantly in a state of maximum possible leverage and you need to expand. And so what that would always mean, and you can you can see this coming like a freight train coming across the western Kansas prairie. I mean, it's so obvious and yet Everybody did it and everybody ju would just continue to do it cycle after cycle as as soon as everybody as as the, the cattle market had increased and was at the top of a of a um, price curve because remember the markets goes up and market goes down it cycles up it cycles down that's completely healthy normal organic praise God what these guys would do and still continue to do is blow their brains out and increase their leverage and expand guaranteed at the top of the market. And it's just never, ever learn the lesson. The The greed would just kick in and they'd say, wow, I could get to the point where I had a, I could borrow enough money that I can have a thousand head of cattle. Won't, won't I be, won't I be the big, the big man on campus if I can have a thousand head of cattle, which is completely arbitrary amount. And so they do everything wrong and re-lever and re-increase that leverage. And um, they never had any equity in anything. And then, of course, as soon as you do that, the moment that the, the market pulls back, or in the case of real estate, the bubble pops and the bottom falls out from underneath the real estate market, not only do you not have any equity in anything, you're in you're in the red. You owe somebody money. So you've got this house that you're in. You have to keep making the payments on it, but you can't sell it because if you tried to sell it, you would you would then be short. Uh, you wouldn't be able to to pay off the mortgage and you'll owe the bank a lump sum of cash. I mean, it, 
and you you just look at people and shake your head and say what what are what are you doing what are you thinking this is this is ridiculous and the answer is greed and i want a 4000 square foot house and i want granite countertops and i want two brand new cars and da 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 da, da. oh never mind that i have to send the children to um, be cared for and raised by strangers and be put into a school system which is teaching the children Marxism. It's counter-educating, contra-educating them, and it's exposing them to every possible kind of um, sexual perversion. So the, the children are now literally in physical danger of being sexually assaulted if you send them to public schools, but then you have to because you have to have someone babysit the kids and you can't possibly educate them yourselves because both spouses have to be working outside the home in order to have the 4,000 square foot house with granite countertops and two brand new cars. And you don't have any equity in anything. And we just got, we got to keep pushing. We got to keep push, pushing, pushing, pushing. Oh, and then, and then by the way, when these kids all turn 18, even though they probably won't, you know, be able to solve for X, um, we're going to have to rack up a quarter million ahead so that they can get um, bachelor's degrees in in uh, women's studies from, you know, some some ridiculous Marxist indoctrination camp. But you have to do that because they won't be able to get a job if they don't have a degree. <laughs> it's just so disordered. It's so disordered. You keep talking about equity as though it actually exists. And the, the lie that the bankers don't tell you is equity is a made-up idea. It's unrealized gain. Yeah. And the gap between what you have paid down and what you still have paid have left to pay, which is what they call equity, isn't real until you sell. Exactly. It's and not- that can't be realized yeah. until, the, until you mark to market whatever it is you have, whether it's a house, a head of cattle, a car, anything. Anybody trying to sell you or get you to trade on equity is getting you to trade on a promise. It's getting you're trading on air at that point. If you end up biffing on it and ending and losing everything, it's like, what do you expect? You're trading on nothing. Well, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely. not exactly nothing, but it's 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 a it it's a figment. It it's it's something that doesn't exist until you actually sell the item. That's right. It's blue sky. And in terms of in terms of cattle, I just pounded and pounded and pounded on this, especially to guys who um, were cow calf operators. So you've got this cow, this, you know, this, you know, reproduction machine, she's producing a calf every year. And it, you know, you keep her. And so, you know, you're, you're invested in her if the market increases and now you have this cow herd and every single one of these calf factories is now worth double and this this would happen um that the, the price of of cows would would double she's now worth double what you initially paid for her and these guys would go out and i'm rich and da 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 da, da and buying the brand new fifty five thousand dollar pickup and this that and the other gentlemen that is not money in your pocket. That is not real. It is completely unrealized. It is blue sky. 
And the only way you can put that money in your pocket and make it real is to sell that cow. <gasps> no, I can't do that. I can't, I can't sell my cows. Well, then I, I can't help you because the only way to realize profit is it, at some point you, you have to sell something. It, I would tell the guys right away at the beginning of the, of the cattle marketing school, if you are one of these people who refuses to sell anything, you're going to get nothing out of this. And there's absolutely nothing that I or anyone else can do to help you. Because if you, if you refuse to sell anything, you, you can't even get out of the shoot. I mean, you can't even start the race and you'd be shocked at how many people in the cattle business, especially. And, and like I said, in the cow calf side of things are just, you know, they're more, they are more dedicated to invested in and loyal to their cow herds than they are in their marriages to their wives. And I'm, I'm not being facetious at all. Um, there are a lot of those guys who would divorce their wife before they would, um, before they would sell their cow herd. So that it's, sounds uh, like they might be making an idol of their cow herd as well. And this is something that I mentioned because I was talking with a friend of mine who was, he was, he was saying that he thought that maybe he was making an idol out of work. In other words, he was so interested in doing such a good job at work and being innovative and coming up with great ideas that he was neglecting his prayer life and his family. And I think he was exaggerating to be honest, but with what you're saying, it's not an exaggeration that if you are mm -mm. so focused on your herd and what you can get out of it and neglecting everything else, um, yeah, you're serving mammon at this point. We're beyond mere economic foibles and, and uh, not realizing the reality of the economic scheme. You're now into spiritual problems. Well, absolutely. And look at before the advent of social media, I think now um, the, the cited number one um, cause of of civil divorce in in you know North America these days is I think it's now cited as being um, social media, but before the advent of Facebook, so let's say ten years ago and before, the number one cause of um, people filing for civil divorce was was financial. Absolutely, oh yeah, people people will are more clingy to their their careers to their bad financial decisions etc cetera, etc cetera, than they are to their marriage and so you you watch people and you can just see it coming that the the marriage breaks down because of all of these mistakes that are being made yes on the financial side and yes people um especially when both spouses are working outside the home which is almost everybody now um of course that 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 quote unquote, takes a toll on, on the quality of the marriage. Now that doesn't, civil divorce is a fiction, obviously. I mean, given the, I don't think we need to go down that rabbit hole. The listenership is probably all on board with this, but in terms of the quality of the marriage relationship and, you know, conflict and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, it's been a, a big problem in agriculture, since after World War II and the heirs of Russia and everything, that um, in agriculture, big problem with women 
um, leaving their husbands just because of the the financial chaos, the financial stress, and just women saying, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm I'm done living in this state of perpetual uncertainty. That you know, it's feast or famine. One year, one year we're almost millionaires, and the next year we're in we're in massive debt up to our eyeballs. You're you're a train wreck. Um, this is this is ridiculous. I'm I'm gonna go. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna divorce you, and I'm gonna go have some sort of a quality of life. And that's what these women say. So there's a, a lot of a, a big problem in agriculture with marital abandonment, specifically on the part of the women leaving the men, just because of this fi- financial ineptitude. Yeah. I'm curious because it wasn't all that long ago that you were still an active commodities broker. How often did you come across ranchers where where the the homestead or the ranchstead or whatever the proper noun is, um, where there was a multi generational home? In other words, like three, four generations. Because uh, when I mentioned that we were possibly going to do a, a uh, financial Friday show and was soliciting questions on Twitter, one of the themes that came up was the whole idea of what's the advice you have for parents where where for families where both parents have to work. Well. And it wasn't that long ago where this actually was a viable option because grandma was available or cousins or aunts were available. The extended mm-hmm. family unit was still available to help out if, in cases where you actually needed more than one income. How rare was it for you when you were still doing the commodities business to come across ranchers and farms and, and, and such where you had that two, three, four generation uh, homestead? Well, I mean, we have to make a precision. Almost all of them involve um, multi-generational. It's a family business because the land is inherited. The land is being passed down. And this is another big problem is that it's really, really difficult for young people to break into agriculture precisely because um, it's almost impossible for a young person to be able to go out and and to acquire land to get access to land in order to start an agricultural endeavor well, it's they're basic- not making any more land i mean you either have it or you don't but in order to be able to borrow enough money to buy it because everything's so inflated and so on and so forth. Yes. I mean, granted, it's not the, um, you know, they're not giving land away like they did in the Oklahoma land runs and stuff. They're not doing that. But it's if you're 24 years old and, you know, all you have to your name, maybe $50,000, maybe. How, how do you buy a farm? Well, you, the answer is, is you don't. <laughs> so the vast, vast, vast majority of my clients and the people that I did business with were in a multi-generational family business. How many of them actually lived in the same home multi-generationally with their parents? Almost none almost none. And that is, this is a problem in the United States, in North America, as compared to Europe, is that in Europe, people do, there's not the stigma attached um, for living in a multi-generational household. There's, There's not a stigma attached to, you know, continuing to live in the same house with your parents. In fact, for some people, it's expected, especially if they're if they're inheriting, you know, a large a large home or something in in a city, you know, a, a what would be called a, a palace, you know. Um, and there still are things like that. Would that be all of Europe, or would that be Catholic Europe? And I 
I kind of wonder because when we make examples of the United States versus Europe, I wonder if sometimes the, uh, the examples of the United States would more closely align with Protestant Europe. Yes, absolutely. Excellent point. So in Catholic, and remember in terms of the United States, there is no Catholic United States. In Europe, there's Catholic Europe and Protestant Europe. In the United States, it's, just, it's all Protestants, all Freemasonic culturally. So Europeans, younger Europeans especially, they don't understand. They don't understand how it is that we have this culture in the United States where you leave home and then you you don't ever go back. Now we can get into another conversation about this whole phenomenon of these, you know, perpetual adolescent man children always living in their parents' basement and things like that. Yes, absolutely that exists and, and it's totally a problem. But still, by and large, when you move out of your parents' house, you don't ever go back. And so they, you know, Europeans, especially Catholic Europeans, see these this these anecdotal, the anecdotal evidence of Americans who are living in their car and they and they just they say, why don't why don't you just go home? Why don't you just go live with your parents? And you're like, no, you don't understand. You you will live in your car before you move back in with your parents. It is just it is just simply not done, especially if you're, let's say you're in your 30s and you've been, well, you've had a modicum of success and you've lived and you've maybe even had a mortgage, had your own, had a house, you know. And then if you lose your job, fall into financial hard times, um, yeah, you you live in your car. You don't move back in with your parents. You live in your car. And they, the Catholic, Catholic Europeans, like you said, look at that. And they're just like, what, what in the hell is wrong with you people? I, well, yeah, that's absolutely right. It's not um, just the younger generations either. I mean, sometimes the, the parents, as soon as you turn 18 and you go off to college, they change the locks or sell the house and move away without giving you a forwarding address. You're on your own, pal. Oh, yeah. And we're going to go do our, uh, our, our, our sunset cruise. That's right. I mean, the the business of lecturing children about, you know, from the time that they're eight, nine, ten, you know, parents making it clear that the parents are counting the days until the kid is 18 and out of the house and just m making sure that the child understands that the child will not be welcome, uh, making that abundantly clear. You will not be welcome here. Um, and again, that's <laughs> what a what a messed up culture and society that is. That loops, that loops back to the the um, quote I pulled from the Epistle of St. Paul earlier. See, I'm Catholic and I can quote the Bible about <laughs> uh, charity covering a multitude of sins. Yeah, you bet. And um, the other thing is that the, a lot of older parents, grandparents, etc., they make it very, very clear that I am not, I am not raising your children. So if you have children, um, I, they, they may visit briefly, but I, I am absolutely under no circumstances. I'm not going to be your babysitter, and I'm certainly not going to have your children living in the house with me. And so there's that whole dynamic. Um, so it's, it's exactly the opposite. 
now, granted, there are a lot of good grandparents who, you know, would bend over backwards and, and lay down in traffic for their grandchildren. I'm, I'm not saying that there are none of that, but culturally across the board, um, the whole notion that um, there is any multi-generational cooperation in terms of the raising of children. Yeah, I mean, wh where? ask the question, ask the question, where are these grandparents? Where are these people of the greatest generation and the baby boomers and now Generation X? Why are all of these kids having to be sent to um, the hands of, of, of degenerate strangers and being sent to what everybody knows are Marxist and sex pervert indoctrination factories? I'm Why? listening to this and I understand that this definitely happens, but I'm also at this point in, in, in my life where my kids are not old enough yet to um, be imminently heading out on their vocation. And my thought of uh, when, if and when they go out and, and get married and have families, my thought in, with regard to grandkids is, tell you what, I'll raise your kids because if you do as, as well of a job raising your kids as you do with your chores right now, I better just do this for you. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm, it's I'm that. sure this will change in a few years, but <laughs> it will, it will calm down. <laughs> but yeah, that, that fundamental lack of charity that you could look at your own grandchildren and say, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to help with this. And yeah, uh, s send them to the market Marxist indoctrination and sex pervert, um, recruitment camp. A absolutely. Send them there. I'm not, I'm not going to be bothered with any of this. What a, what a poverty of charity that is. Um, so yeah, that, that absolutely indicts our own culture. Um, what, what self-respecting grandparent would permit the children to be, to be thus abandoned and thus abused and no, 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 let's, you know, what can I do to help? What can we do to help? Et cetera, et cetera. Well, no, I'm, I'm entitled. I raise my kids. I'm done. I'm entitled to this, that, and the other. <laughs> me, 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 me. And we get that launches us right back into the ov overarching concept of narcissism, you know, so it, it all it all ties together. It all comes back around. Poverty of charity, poverty of love, completely offset from poverty from the financial aspects. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, and we have to be careful because, again, this is one of those words that is just being completely destroyed, corrupted etc. Conceptually, the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor. We should we should get down and worship. Bergoglio, anti-Pope Bergoglio actually said once that we should get down on our knees and worship and reverence the poor. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. Blessed are the poor in spirit detachment, detachment from your wealth, willing, being willing to lay it all down, um, putting God first, that is poverty of spirit, not necessarily poverty in and of itself. Um, but I mean, it's granted, we opened the show with me talking about the fact that I, at this point, it would be detrimental to me and I wouldn't, my, the quality of my life would probably go down if somebody tried to wire me a million dollars. Um, so you can be talking, you can, we can have a nuanced conversation about actual sums of money. Um, but 
what our Lord said in the Beatitudes are blessed are the poor in spirit. So if you're a billionaire, but you're detached from that and you're a good custodian of it and you're, you are filled with charity and you're helping people. And yes, you're being a good steward of your wealth so that your estate continues on for generations and isn't just blown now. Um, yeah, what, what about people 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 300 years from now? Don't you have some sort of an obligation if you have this massive estate, if you're worth a billion dollars, that you're going to produce issue, that you're going to have heirs, and that there will be a social responsibility that they then have to people in, in their contemporaneous with them in their generation, that they will be able to continue to help and, and do good things and be leaders and pillars of society, which if people who are given bless, uh, you know, um, those who are of those to those who much is given much is required yes if you are rich you do have a social responsibility and you do have a responsibility to have some sort of a leadership role in society without any question you should that's why you should you have a responsibility to cultivate yourself to educate yourself and um you know be be in a state of grace and and be a good person and do good things you because you do have a bigger responsibility if you're rich yeah Absolutely. There was the French phrase, I think it was French, noblesse oblige, the mm -hmm. whole idea that the, the nobility uh, are in their position because they have obligation. So if, if they aren't serving the public, then there's something wrong. And they'll, they will certainly reap that at some point. I don't know how many of them really took that to heart, but that's that was certainly understood by at least a few of them. Exactly. Well, I think it was very, very well understood. And the other thing is that people who were not in the upper, upper classes actually admire. Remember when we used to admire wealthy, successful people? <laughs> I mean, that's almost a completely foreign concept now for two reasons. First, the Marxists have instilled this vice of envy and turned it into a, a new counter virtue. Um, and the other thing is that it is, it is absolutely true that in today's post-Christian, post-Western world, people who are extraordinarily rich tend to be absolutely deplorable, just deplorable. Well, so you know, you're looking them, at some of not them not all of them, but a lot of them, and the ones that are the most publicly visible. So you're looking at, I'm referencing people like the Kardashians. Um, okay, that, but how did they get their wealth? The Kardashians? Um, Mr. Kardashian started, was a big-time lawyer. Yeah, but but that's, oh, that's chump change compared to what they're worth now. Um, the, the What started it all off for them was Kim Kardashian produced a homemade pornographic video of her having sex with some rapper. No, before and before all of that, before any of those Kardashian kids reached the age of majority, Mr. Kardashian, before Mrs. Kardashian left for Bruce Jenner or whatever yeah. it calls itself now, um, uh, Kardashian was worth hundreds of millions of dollars as a lawyer. And that was- He was worth hundreds of millions? I didn't know that. All oh, I yeah. know is that he was, he was on OJ's- team and they were all socializing and they um chris kardashian and nicole brown simpson were like very 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 close friends they all ran in the same social circles and then what's now been revealed is that they were also all having sex with each other too because that that 
moral degeneracy. Again, when you get a bunch of narcissists together, it descends into sexual perversion. And a lot of times that sexual perversion stays within the the boundaries of heterosexuality. Um, but yeah, they were all they were all swinging and having sex with each other. Well, okay, so that's the LA scene, LA lawyers and and entertainment types. That okay, set that aside. But there are people who legitimately earn tons of money. And and one of the examples that I I was thinking of earlier, and I haven't done this. I'd love to be able to do it. But it, let's say I could come up with a, an app for a mobile phone which saved you four hours a day on your job every day. Mm-hmm. That might be worth paying ninety nine dollars for that app, and mm-hmm. it, it might be worth a couple of hundred million people paying that. Mm-hmm. Did I cheat anyone? No. Nope. God bless you. And and this is, I'm not exactly going completely Ayn Rand here saying it, it's value for value. I gave you a significant value. Give me something back. Mm-hmm. But it is, it's one of these things. If I come up with an idea that's, that's worth something and you voluntarily pay for it, nobody's, nobody at Mercedes is putting a gun to somebody's head and saying, you must pay it. Or sorry, let me do this correctly. You must pay us $180,000 for this car. <laughs> no, it, it's because somebody appreciates the quality of it. Yeah. You could, you could the people who buy a Mercedes could just as easily go buy a Toyota Corolla or, uh, 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 I don't know, what is a Chevy equivalent? Um, the, 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 it's quality. You, pay f- you, you get what you pay for. Maybe, maybe you're going after something of, of high quality. Um, so the people who make massive windfalls off of that, though, they do have the responsibility to spend it wisely. That's yeah. where I was going with this. But we're, what were you going to say? Well, in terms of... It has to be said that there are there is um, there are hyperinflated prices of luxury goods where people are just buying the brand, and that's that's disgusting. That's absolutely disgusting. When I had cars and I love cars, um, I never had any interest. I think the most I ever paid for a car, let me think. I think the most I ever paid for a car was forty five thousand. I had no interest in anything more expensive than that because you know oh dude someday and when you're when you're 45 and you know you've got a huge brokerage firm and you've got a bunch of you know bunch of employees and blah 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 you know i'm talking now uh, scenarios that would be going through one's mind 15 20 years ago um oh you get a ferrari absolutely not i would have no interest in that whatsoever because it's just, it's too damn much to spend on a car. And for me, for me, if you have a car that if you take it out and I mean, in Denver, the big problem in Denver was um, unlicensed, uninsured, uh, illegal Mexicans. What happens if some unlicensed, uninsured, illegal Mexican rear ends you in your, in your Ferrari? just just the stress of the thought of that happening would completely ruin the experience of driving the car i'd rather have you know a 35 40 45000 car tops tops um one of the last cars i i had was my little the little saturn sky that i bought in 2008 which was a super fun great little car i only paid 31.5 for the thing and i you know i completely custom ordered it um brand new 31.5 well if, if something happens to the car just 
it's it's not it's not just going to absolutely consume you it's not going to ruin your decade if somebody if somebody rear-ends you as you're tootling around as you're tootling around the greater denver metropolitan area so i never had any interest in having anything more than just you know maybe higher end american muscle cars and even then i never had a corvette i never had a corvette i i only had I only had F bodies. Um, so, but just cause I just, it got to the point where the price of Corvette started going up, 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 up. And you couldn't even, you could even think about a Corvette for less than 58,000 or something like that. Well, I'm just, no. And, and you also have to look at, um, the the utility and the satisfaction and the return that you're going to get back out of something like that i got a an enormous amount of satisfaction out of my forty one thousand dollar pontiac firehawk you know just it was it was great but if i had had exactly the same amount of pleasure satisfaction and utility from a car that cost a quarter of a million dollars. Would that have been a good exchange? No, absolutely not. No way would that have been a good exchange ever. And so I would just, I would just never do that. So the, the ostentation, the ostentation and the, um, the avarice and people's obsession with, um, name brands and marks. And, you know, again, Look at the rap hip hop culture, which is one of the most morally disordered cultures on the surface of this or any other planet. And use these people as counter as counter examples. Okay. What are they all obsessed with? Status. Status, brand names, um, conspicuous consumption. I have a Bentley. I have this. I have that. I've, uh, you know, I have the $300,000 Ferrari, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's all that ridiculous, um, ostentation. And it's just, and it's stupid. Um, designer clothes, this, that, you know, it's just, it's stupid there. You're not getting utility out of that to justify the expense you're purely just in the, in a in an absolutely ridiculous and frankly obvious and pathetic pissing match with w- what you consider to be your peers and it's it's pathetic and they but see they don't have the self awareness so they don't even realize it they don't realize that that actual decent moral people look at them and just are shaking their heads and thinking how sad and also by the way everybody with a brain in their head knows that those rap hip-hop people who today speaking of you know blue sky um unrealized equity on things who on paper their accountants are telling them that they have nine figure net worth or even some of them ten figure net worth what is that? What what is the commodity? What can you do to to capture that? How how is it that you think that I mean, just a name from our past that our generation would remember is um, what's his name, MC Hammer. <laughs> remember him? He was worth he was worth like a hundred and fifty million, and I mean, back in like nineteen ninety one, that was a heck of a lot of money, and and then you hear like just a few years later that he's he's BK, he's destitute, da da da. Well, how did that happen? How do you how do you go 
from being worth 150 million to in less than a decade being completely, totally insolvent and not having a pot to piss in. Well, doing things like buying tigers and doing things like buying $200,000 Bentleys and things like that. And everybody, everybody knows that it's coming. Everybody sees that it's coming, that these people are not going to hold it together. Um, the only thing that you can say for the Kardashians is that they're, they're financially savvy enough. Someone is financially savvy enough that they're probably going to hold a lot of that together. I saw something came across the transom and I had occasion to watch a video of, um, the youngest one, Kylie Jenner. Who's I was going to say, I think it's, I, I was trying to remember which name it was. She's up to a billion now. She's, she's got, she on paper, she started a makeup company and actually that why the, I think what the, why this came over is because it was talking about the fact that her mother, um, she wanted to start a makeup company and her mother said, well, you have, you can, you can do that, but the seed capital has to be your own money. Um, cause obviously they already, even, even as a teenager, because they were all on that reality show that they did, even the children had, you know, non-trivial estates already. So she had to start it with her own money, her own seed capital. And she starts this, this makeup company and it just explodes. And she is the youngest, I, she's the youngest self-made billionaire, I think ever, um, well, they say about authors, if you want to be a successful author, write about what you know. And I guess it also works for entrepreneurs. Go into the business you know. And I guess if you're in that Hollywood um, superficial lifestyle, I really don't know the Kardashians that well. I'm just going to make a wild guess that Kylie Jenner, Kardashian, whatever her name is, she knows makeup. And she probably saw a niche there that needed to be exploited, or at least she could make people think that they needed to buy it. So. Well, she had the Good. massive, the massive social media presence. But the thing, the thing that's so sickening is that I watched a video and I, again, I haven't had TV since February, 2009. And even then I wasn't, I never watched any of those Kardashian reality shows because they just made me sick. But it's the first time that I actually sat down and for any, any span of time, listened to Kylie Jenner actually speaking. And I mean, she's teetering on the precipice of mental retardation. So circling back to, um, I guess she has a our, good agent. Yeah, absolutely. But so, you know, they have this, this, they're celebrities for, for no real reason, all of these people glom onto them and Kylie Jenner, you know, mouth breathing through her mouth says, I want to, I want to make lip gloss. And all of these people glom onto that and yeah, build this on paper, on paper, billion dollar company. This is, she is one of the least admirable people on the face of the earth. She's stupid. She's vacuous. Um, wildly immoral, wildly immoral. And it just goes back to that conversation about, yeah, we have people who are rich, but 
fewer and fewer and fewer of them are admirable in any way. And, and for a lot of people, especially, and by the way, shout out to all the young people. <laughs> we kind of lit a fire on the last episode where I said, you know, oh, oh, my listenership is all skews way older and there are hardly any young people listening to this. And then, you know, <laughs> my email box fills up and apparently there's, there's one or two, there's one or two young people out there listening who are, let's put it younger, younger than super nerd and myself. And, and I'm a getting- lot of them found you because of your economic topic. So it was yes. extraordinarily appropriate that we, we bring back the financial Friday because it fit since we said, Hey, all y'all who are younger than us, um, let us know. And a lot of them let us know by Twitter too. <laughs> well, I had, to tell you, <laughs> I, I had to tell you about that part, but yeah, some yes. of us, some emailed in and, and a few hit me up on Twitter saying, Hey, I'm under 30. I'm under 40. <laughs> <laughs> but for especially the younglings in their 20s who are listening, you're going to think I'm crazy and you might not even believe me. But just it, within my lifetime, when I was still a kid, rich people were generally admirable. They were not the moral degenerate, eye rolling, you know, horrible people. I mean, you know, like for, it's, it's, it's a nuanced question because we don't want to be anti-capitalistic, but then at the same time, you have to be, you have to be objective and honest about the state of society. Let, I mean, look at Zuckerberg. What a, what a deplorable human being and a, a, just a tyrant in the making. And he's declared it. There's, there's nothing admirable about that. You look at, you look at the people in Palo Alto and yeah, yeah, I mean, some of them are, are, are brilliant in the sense of, you know, they can code, um, they can innovate, but everything you hear about Palo Alto, the culture there, obviously the politics, it's, it's deplorable. There's nothing admirable about any of these people. Um, you know, it used to be, and it was for a very long time that in general, that the upper classes, the wealthier people in society were generally admirable, decent, and the ones that weren't um, would tend to would tend to get kind of um, flushed out or um, marginalized somehow. You know, I'm not saying that there have never been non-admirable rich people in history. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying in general. Um, the, you didn't you didn't have this Marxist hatred and resentment of people who were rich because they were rich, and also people were generally more admirable back in the day. Whereas today, it seems to me that just everything's getting completely inverted. Have you ever seen any of the episodes of Top Gear? I mean, and probably on on YouTube if you ever saw them. I, I know what it is. Yes, I know and, what Top Gear is. I mention it because you talk about the, the Bentleys and the other outrageously expensive cars. And and uh, I, I've definitely seen a lot of the, the British TV version of, of Top Gear. And one of the, the questions that uh, some, some friends and I who, who have seen some of these episodes have asked each other is, if, if you could have any car, period, what would you want? And what I always appreciated about that show is, yes, they're always reviewing quarter million dollar to multi-million dollar cars but they are they're doing this from the perspective of people who appreciate engineering for example the bugatti veyron the thing that just broke 300 miles an hour on the on the on the um lesson out on the the, rack, the track in germany mm-hmm. that's an impressive feat of engineering and the people who would buy a two million dollar bugatti veyron are probably the same people who would like to buy a mig 29 
you know, okay, Paul Allen, he's dead now, but he's the kind of person who would buy that. And they're not doing it to be flashy. They're doing it because they actually appreciate the engineering that goes into this thing. There are those people and they will have wealth and they'll keep it because they appreciate what they have and, and they appreciate excellence and perfection as opposed to people who will wear a $30,000 plastic watch during a football game just because, hey, I can buy a $30,000 plastic watch. I don't even know how those things get to be that expensive. It's the difference between buying value and something that's actually worth it because somebody put the the engineering and excellence into it as opposed to I, I buy anything as long as the perception is that I, I, I'm rich and therefore I'm flashy. It reminds me of when, when the iPhone first launched, there was some app developer who looked at uh, the, the terms and, and conditions of the Apple App Store and discovered that the maximum price you could set on an app in the App Store was $999.99. So he created an app called I Am Rich, and all it showed was like a, a yellow diamond. It was just a stupid app. And he even said, this is completely a joke. And he sold, I think, 17 copies of the app before Apple pulled it. And oh the whole point goodness. the whole point was, he said, this is just an app to demonstrate to people that you, you have the money to spend on a $1,000 app. It's yeah. just for show. Yep. And I think half of the people who bought it thought that was hilarious and they had the money and they bought it. And the other half were people's kids who didn't realize they bought it. <laughs> and so that's why Apple pulled it. But Tangentially, uh, did you see, I think it was today, there was a news story that one of these Saudi princes wanted to buy for his son a model of a like a, I don't know if it was an Airbus or a Boeing, but a model of a big jet. So he calls somebody and his English is poor. And there's, there's obviously a massive misunderstanding. And they think that he's, that he's trying to order actual jets. And so they start talking about, well, you know, how do you want the interior? And he thinks that, that the person is just, you know, going to build a hyper-realistic uh, model of, of a jet. And they're asking him what they want the interior of the model to look like. Okay, here's the punchline in all of this. Oh, and by the way, he wants two. He wants two of these. So it's one, one for himself and one for his son or something like that. They quote him the price of $350 million. And he just says, okay. And, you know, they come back to him afterwards where, where he says, no, I wasn't, I was ordering models. I wasn't ordering actual planes. He took delivery of them because he's a Saudi prince. And he just said, well, I'm going to give one to one person and I'll give one to another person and yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll just, it's a good laugh. Think of the decadence where someone quotes you a price. You're trying to order model airplanes. Someone quotes you a price and sends you, you know, uh, an invoice for $350 million. And you just kind of go, yeah, all right. It's a little bit high. <laughs> I mean, that that is the level of ostentation. And that, again, take your take your negative example from morally depraved people. So we've talked about the rap hip hop culture. Now let's talk about the Islamic political system, which is obviously what these Saudis are. What, what a truly morally decrepit um, system it has to be 
to generate the, the sort of people like the Saudi princes that we see for whom they would spend, this guy was willing to spend $350 million, not on two functioning Boeing passenger jets. No, he was willing to spend $350 million on what he thought were two model Boeing passenger jets. And uh, presumably, he went along with this because he thought that um, that this would demonstrate that that was the market among the rich for this particular product and that he didn't want to be outdone by anyone else. And so, yeah, he would go ahead and pay $350 million for two model airplanes. That could have paid for the driver's education for almost all Saudi women. Yes, absolutely. It sure could have. <laughs> I mean, it's you, you just shake your head at that, but then you realize that is a function of the moral decrepitude of the culture that they're in. And in that case, the moral decrepitude of the of the Islamic political system, specifically the mi micro oligarchy at the top of it, which is, you know, that's how it was engineered. That is, that's what it was designed to be, a, a, a hyper-rich micro-oligarchy at the top and then a massive destitute underclass beneath, just a, a slave class underneath. And so look at this negative template, negative example. That is clearly wrong. We're going to be not that or or maybe even we'll be the opposite of that. Yeah, I've, I've got a a model airplane of an Airbus 380 on my shelf here that I'm looking at. And if there's a Saudi prince who wants to buy that with my signature on it and, and, and so I can pay off my mortgage, you know, email at supernerdmedia.com. I mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, I mean you should, you I'm should lowball it. completely tongue in cheek. Lowball it, put it on eBay for $35 million and just say, attention, attention all Saudi princes. Fire sale liquidation. I, I, I'm in a bad spot. I'm willing to part with my model A380 for the low, low price of 35 million. So, you know, send, send me, a, send me a direct message or buy it now, do the buy it now <laughs> on eBay. Actually, real A380s go for a lot less than what they initially were supposed to go for because they're such maintenance hogs and they're, ah. they're not, they're not so uh, efficient as it turns out. So man, Boeing is not having a good decade, are they? That's, yeah, they're they're really getting. Oh okay, no! Wait, as, that's a three eighty is Airbus. That's Airbus. I'm Air, sorry. Airbus I'm sorry. is a three eighty. Yes, I mean that that turned out to be a a, a financial pig for them, and uh, it, it's because the the airlines don't want the the quad jets uh, with the, the massive payload. So the the ideal aircraft right now are like the triple sevens. Triple sevens, yeah. So they they yeah. can they can hold up to four hundred people on on that aircraft, and they can fly them eight thousand miles. Uh, I don't know what that is in kilometers, but uh, the Airbus realized this, and they so they came out with the three fifty X. It's a basically a triple seven with with uh, polycarbonate wings, so it's kind of a cross between the triple seven and the seven eight seven. So Airbus is strategically advantaged to maybe go the right direction. The big advantage Airbus has right now is they haven't been building planes that crash. And as a software developer, yeah. realizing that the problems with the the seven thirty seven Max airliners. Mm -hmm is all in software and some of the postmortems that have been done about these crashes the people at Boeing even said the software has not been tested uh, there there are conditions in the code where we know things aren't right and the the manager said we don't care ship it we're behind schedule <sighs> okay okay
people should go to prison or worse. Yeah, absolutely. It's murder. It's murder. Yep. It used, there used to be the saying, if it ain't bowing, I ain't going. And I don't think we can make that, that, that little rhyme anymore. It's, um, I don't know if, if you've got that kind of a corporate culture, then I think, I think we've had peak Boeing, unfortunately. I saw a blog post suggesting that, um, Southwest airlines might actually consider switching away from Boeing. Because wow. they, they were one of the, the launch customers of the Max Airlines, uh, the 737 Max. Yeah. Because all, all of Boeing, or I'm sorry, all, all of um, Southwest is all, mm-hmm. is all, is all um, they're all 737s. Yeah, it's, they don't do any transoceanic long haul anything, do they? It's all just hopping around North America, right? Well, they all started in Texas originally, and it all just spidered out here in the U.S. But. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think the only Airbus that they have in inventory was because of uh, an acquisition they made, and they very quickly just you know sold those off to somebody else who wanted more Airbus airframes. Mm-hmm. But they they specifically have all seven thirty sevens, and they were the yeah. launch customers for the seven thirty seven four hundred, the seven hundred, and I believe the Max eight and the Max nine. And of course, the the Max eight, Max nines, they do have the range they can go. I think they're ETOP certified to to make the jump over to Ireland. I'm not entirely sure. But, mm-hmm. but uh, they do have some range to them. Mm-hmm. The problem is airlines like uh, like uh, Southwest and, and Alaska Air, who are so heavily invested in the 737, especially the MAX line, they're hurting badly right now because their jets are grounded. I mean, a yeah, they're lot, grounded. A lot of, all their new jets are grounded, and they're saying, this is a big problem. We can't even get enough airframes to go at, at, at full capacity right now. And the the other airliners who uh, the other airlines I should say who have diversified and and either have a mix or went all Airbus they're laughing at this point now they're laughing until Airbus crashes again or something goes wrong and that's the weird thing is yes these are you you'd think they'd put a little bit of quality control into this and this is a separate discussion I've had excuse me I've had with uh, some of my uh, coworkers about the whole idea of of licensing software engineers and 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 there are people who are real engineers and I say say this as a like mechanical engineers or um, or civil engineers the term engineer means something you have to pass a certification that gives you uh, responsibility and liability to the public I think it's called professional engineering or PE or something like that and they I, I think justifiably look down their nose at anybody who writes code and calls themselves an engineer because that word means something it's like it'd be like saying I'm a code doctor I think real doctors would look down their yeah. nose and justifiably so by saying, I'm a professional, I'm a doctor of code. No, you're not. <laughs> yeah. You wrote something that worked after four trial and errors and, and it, it passed all the error, all the conditions that you know about at this point in time. They don't, they don't make you a doctor, dude. Well, here's my question, and maybe you can answer this about the Boeing situation. Okay, this this is a software issue. This has been This has been going on. I mean, when was the there's been two crashes. There was one in Africa. And then what was the other one? There was one in Southeast Asia, I believe, but I think Southeast there have Asia, been yeah. three or four other cases they know about where something anomalous happened. And after the crashes occurred, this was reported to Boeing. They looked into the after action reports and looked at the, the, the flight diagnostics and realized the exact same problem happened, but the pilots pulled it out. Why in the hell don't you just go in and fix the code? Why don't you just ship everybody um, an update or a new, a new, I don't know what it would be a central processor or whatever, whatever it is. 
what if you know it's a if, if it's a software problem it seems to me that's the easiest thing in the world to fix why don't you just go fix it why are why are all of these aircraft still grounded that's what i don't understand do you understand that oh yeah it's very easy just point to the which of the 75 million lines of code that need to be changed but don't they know it's something about um misreading um airspeed or something isn't it i know that there's a massive amount of code involved in these things and the, one of the problems is that you have people writing um, control code for pieces of the airplane without the whole thing being integrated. So you're given specifications for your part. Here are the, the parameters and operating conditions under which this needs to work. And you hope that's actually correct. And if it's not, then you know you, you may have written your code perfect based to specifications, but if the specification is not right, uh, airplane might crash. Wow. It, it, it almost makes one think that one has reached some level of peak, what do you call it? Peak software. I mean, if, if you get to the point now where we have these things, but they are completely unmanageable, they can't be fixed, they're too big to be um, processed, comprehended by anyone. Well, it's it a matter of complexity and how much moving target, how, how much of a moving target the whole thing is. We've talked about the F-35 in a previous uh, mm -hmm. podcast as well. That thing, that project started in the late 90s, and it's just now going into production in the military. And it's even even though the, the Marines have gone, supposedly gone production ready and combat ready with the F-35, and I think the Air Force has actually taken a few F-35As and done combat missions with them, they keep pulling these things out of active service because they keep finding out that the software isn't quite right. These things are more flying computers than they are airplanes. And, and why do these things have so many problems that the earlier models like the F-16 and the F-14 and all the other things didn't have? Because those other things, is they had computers too, but they weren't completely software driven. And you have to, the way these defense contracts work, you, nobody's building the whole thing all in one factory, all with everybody in the same room. And they're constantly change, constantly changing everything about the airplane right up to the last minute and, and sometimes later. There's a, a saying among software developers, how easy is it to write a program to specifications? It's as easy as walking in water. As long as both are frozen, it's easy. But these the, the expectations are constantly moving. And so if mm. you write your, your, your code and you ship it, to, to the subcontractor who goes to the next subcontractor and up, and then we find out, no, the, the DOD wants it to do this now. Well, guess what? Everything you just wrote has to be redone, and maybe they catch it, maybe they don't. It's, it's not that software can't be written reliably. It's that the, the, the scale of these things and the, the management of complexity is more than a small team, and in some cases even a large, large team can manage. And this is... This is where you get into, it's not really a technology issue, it's a human issue. If you keep changing the, 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 the definition of where the road is going to go, even if you're in the process of building it, you're going to have a mess of a road. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. And we've, um, I think, is that one of the essays that's contained in the first little book that I just put out is about the one about how... Um, specifically the defense industry in the United States is a massive middle-class, upper-middle-class welfare project, basically. So they have like 10 levels of management. And we're talking about, you know, people making, um, 
150, $200,000, $250,000 a year who are completely useless, not needed, just 10 layers of management inside these defense contract companies. Um, but I, I guess I still, I still don't understand how Boeing can have this software issue. They know what the problem is. They know why the, the planes crashed. They know they what the problem is. They know and they now can't why crashed. But they can't, why, why can't they, why can't they patch this? Why can't they fix it? That, that's still what I don't understand. How can you have, how can you have all this software and people make it and you make a flying, you make a flying machine that functions. I mean, notwithstanding the issue we're talking about here, uh, but you, you have an airplane that flies, but then something goes wrong and everybody just throws up their hands and says, it's too complex. We can't fix it. How is that possible? I, I don't understand that. Knowing where there's an error in the software and actually fixing it are two completely different things. Hmm. Because once you isolate where the error is actually manifesting and happening, okay, hmm. that's where it actually fails. But the causes for that, you know, you're famous for saying false base premise. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. is somewhere else much further up in the chain. And to correct that, you now are going to crash a whole bunch of other stuff in the code as well. Hmm. Weird. It, it, it makes one think, uh, just again, thinking with my, with my business hat on and my capitalism hat on. So we talked in the last episode about how I'm publishing these paper books. One of the reasons I'm publishing the paper books is because it's now the pendulum has swung all the way over so that the most secure way to have the written word not be censored and scrubbed from the face of the earth isn't uploading it into some cloud or anything or carrying it around on a USB drive. Now, the most secure way is to have something physically printed on paper. Uh, that's the hedge now. It almost makes me think that maybe things are swinging, have swung to that extreme also in terms of aeronautics. Is there a market vacuum now for someone who can build a 21st century fly um, fly by wire, meaning physical connections from the cockpit to the to the um, the control surfaces of an airplane? It, it, has it gone all the way over now to the point where it's going to swing back the other way, and we're going to be going back to fly by wire and airplanes that can actually be fixed if they break. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, first off, fly-by-wire is not physical controls from the cockpit to to the control surfaces. It's it's an electronic relay. Okay. What's, what's the term for um, having an actual physical connection to the ailerons or whatever, you know? Um, I don't know that they had a term because it was just called flying or, or, or flying. Nor, nor, normal <laughs> aircraft uh, construction prior to that. I mean, even, even the Existing big aircraft. Existing in the physical universe. Yeah. Even, even the big stuff like the like the B-29s and the 747s. I mean, I don't know if the 747 was, was truly fly-by-wire or not, but there definitely was hydraulic assist. I don't know how much the pilot could actually feel the, the control surfaces through the through the controls, uh, through through the, the, the steering controls and the stuff in the cockpit, but... Uh, it was certainly a lot more manual, but in terms of you know, reliability, there's a phrase that, that comes up in the military that two is one and one is none. And when it comes to aeronautics, I know that there's a lot of, uh, if you want something done right, you've got to have redundant controls on, on mm -hmm. circuits. So mm -hmm. you, if you want something to absolutely work, 
you don't have one hydraulic system. You have to have uh, dual redundant systems. You mm-hmm. mentioned uh, uploading you know, files to the cloud and, and whether or not that's reliable anymore. The big data centers like Microsoft is building for Azure or AWS, Amazon, they have um, at least two redundant independent um, power connections coming in. So if you're building a, a an Azure data center in Des Moines, Iowa, you're literally getting literally one power feed from Iowa Power and another power feed from Evergy Power or whoever's the other provider is wow, plus wow. plus batteries on all the servers plus on-site diesel backup. I mean, they don't mm-hmm. take they don't take risks for this. Or they don't take chances. Um calculated risks, yes. Um, and so there's redundancy is the key there. And, and again, in that data center example, you're going to have, you know, AT&T fiber bundle coming in as well as a sprint fiber bundle coming in and maybe even quest as well. So there, so if one fiber bundle goes down for some reason, Hey, we have one or two more that we can still send it out. So the whole idea is you, you, you have your reliability through redundancy. Therefore, Two is one, one is none. Mm-hmm. In the case of how well did you really test the software and what's the backup in case this doesn't work? There is also a training aspect to this too because Boeing knew about the possibility of this and sent out a, a memo about it. Not everybody got it and not everyone knew how to implement it. So, Wow. We have a lot of bullet points to get to, and we're already at like an hour and forty minutes. I know we're gonna have to do we're gonna have to do another one. It, we're gonna have to do like a financial Tuesday or something like that. Yeah, because we've hardly even touched. There's, you know, the women working from home question and all that. That's another that's another half hour. So I think we should call this one, and then we're gonna reserve the right for uh, to to use the awesome theme music again, like next Tuesday or Wednesday. So. At 90, 94 might be financial Friday, Wednesday or something like that. So we reserve the right. We reserve the right. Hey, I got the permission from Fox Media to use it. So I'm, I'm nice. using it. All right. Cool. Um, let's see. I was going to say something halfway clever and I forgot. So serves me right for trying to be clever. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I did put out a tweet after we started saying, hey, uh, 11th hour request for anyone who wants to uh, get in a question for it. And I just have to mention this. Uh, for investment, metals versus real estate. And I have to, this topic came up, the whole idea of investment uh, advice or suggestions and does not give investment advice. Neither do I. Um, principles, we'll talk about principles, but no advice from this podcast. If you want advice, talk to a financial planner, talk to somebody who's actually a fiduciary. Um, other than that, ask about principles. So I, I mentioned that only to say we're not going to answer it and, and to say when it comes to financial topics, we don't give advice. Yeah, I mean, and there's like serious legal reasons for that too. They'll they'll jump down your throat, and also people being people. Um, somebody says, "Oh, I listened to such and such podcast, and they were talking about this and such, and I did it, and it lost money. I'm going to sue you now." You know, oh, good grief! Um, but even even when I was a broker, one of my big things was personal responsibility, and people were begging me all the time, "Oh, just." Let me give you power of attorney. Let me give you power of attorney. Like, nope, I absolutely will not accept power of attorney. And understand for most commodity brokers, because they're a lot of them are really sleazy, um, getting power of attorney was the goal. That's what they wanted because then they could trade the customer's account discretionarily. Like, oh, no, that's not cool. I don't want anything to do with that. No, thank you. 
no. And so again, that's just another another example of how I was very counterintuitive um, or very much going against the grain when I was a broker is that everybody, most brokers wanted power of attorney so that they could frankly churn people's accounts. And I said, nope, I want nothing to do with that. In fact, I even had it posted on, on my website back when barnhart.biz was the website of my brokerage firm on the about page. I explicitly said, I will not accept power of attorney. Um, don't even ask. So, yeah. Speaking of the old barnhart.biz, one of the questions that came in, this has nothing to do with Financial Friday, was somebody said, I'd like to hear the story of how Ann and SuperNerd connected. Maybe we'll do that next time, but it has to do with the old website. Yes. Yes. We'll tell that story. We will go down memory lane. Okay. It, it's it's far less interesting than it than it sounds like it should be. And I'll just say that Ann calls me SuperNerd for a reason. Um, <laughs> and on that topic, the email address for the podcast where you can send feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, or anything else. Uh, within reason, is podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for ends benefactors. You want to talk about a metaphysical exchange rate? Have masses said for somebody. That's right. Um, masses every single day of the week, and at least once a week, there is the Requiem Mass for everybody who died the previous week. I mentioned on Twitter my friend Eric, who is uh, in very, very late-stage cancer. He is not yet eligible for this Requiem Mass. Who knows how soon he will be, but um, if, if you're hearing this and he hasn't passed away yet, please keep him in your prayers. He is a massive, shining example of, I, I wish I could be as good as him. Um, so please keep him in your prayers. And the priests who are offering these masses as well, um, they obviously are high on Satan's hit list too. So please pray for them so they can keep the faith as well. Uh, the Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or previous episodes and would like to return some value, sit on that because at the moment the PayPal option oh, is that's dead. That's right, yeah. <laughs> well, sit you, on it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you could you could go to com and find uh, the mailing address and, and where you could send a check in, which nobody did um, since the last time I checked the, the, the mailbox. And of course, PayPal is dead, so no, no donations came in through there. But uh, that'll be rectified at some point, um, hopefully soon. It's not the biggest pressing concern at the moment. I'll get it fixed soonish. And um, I'll let you do Matthew 17:20, or do you want to defer that to another time? I'll do it real quick. Matthew 17:20. Of course, uh, fast and pray twice a week that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-pope and the whole thing be nullified. That Pope Benedict Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living pope since April of 2005. That anti-pope Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision, and that Pope Benedict Ratzinger repent of whatever he needs to repent of, likewise die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision. Keep praying, persistence, persistence, persistence. Yes, pray because eventually you get to cash it in. Yep. <laughs> and until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. <laughs>